Romans outlines not just the problem, but the solution. And friends, you know it's comprehensive. Again, we let the word speak for itself. Back to Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but it doesn't stop there. But what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is. The solution. That's not a verse that sounds nice. That is a comprehensive theology in a book that is packed. Packed with outlining the solution. Packed tight. The free gift of God. Eternal life. Christ Jesus. Our Lord. And verses like that are all over Romans. Listen to another. Back to chapter 3. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, it doesn't stop there. And are justified how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No mantra. No flag. No corporate apology. None of that. Jesus Christ. 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There it is. This was to show God's righteousness in Christ. Because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. And here it is. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The standard, the solution embodied in Jesus Christ, the just and the justifier, that, beloved, is the solution. Jesus Christ. And in that passage, again, that's just one of many in Romans, you have so much sin, justification, redemption, propitiation, righteousness, faith, all there. Important doctrines from man to sin to salvation to redemption. Romans contains them thoroughly. Solution outlined and comprehensively so. Which brings us to our final reason of why Romans. Thirdly, why Romans Westmount. Think about the comprehensive nature of this book. Why Romans Westmount? We are ready. We are ready. By that I mean, now this is important... Not ready at some intellectual level. It's not like all of us have graduated and, you know, have stickers to show that we're ready for Romans. We are not ivory tower ready. I want to be clear about this as we begin this book. We are not ready for some so-called bigger theology after seven years. No, no, no. Beloved, there's nothing in Romans, and here it is, that is difficult to understand. And I pray this study will reveal that. There's nothing difficult in Romans. Believe me, if, here might be the one prerequisite, I might submit to you it is, if you have the mind of Christ, if you're saved, regenerated, born again, mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, whether you're one year in the faith or 50 years in the, in the faith, you are ready for Romans. So let's not think intellect here, think heart. So with that then, when you think of heart versus mind, how are we ready? How are we ready then? Why would you say that, Jason? Well, this Westmount is exactly where our heart is at. If I could put it simply, it is time. 
my seven plus years here at Westmount, I shared with this with the class a bit this morning too. I've never experienced anything like what we are seeing this past year at Westmount. Never. And not just the new folks that are coming in, existing folks, folks that have been here for these seven years, hungry. You are rabid for the word of God. I must admit to you, I had a moment, I heard this week how disappointed many of you are for the, the latency of some of the ministry starting. You're disappointed. Like, I want to get back to midweek. I want to get back to ladies. I want to get back to men. I, I felt it. Thankful. So I was like, well, no, we, we still have to measure pace out. As you can see, we're going to need to be paced. But amazing. You're ready. You, you just can't wait to tear into the word of God. I cannot tell you how invigorating that is for us that are teaching the word of God. You're ready. I'm ready. We're ready. Let's do this. You want the word. You want to learn. You want to grow. And you're asking for it over and over. The many people asking questions, seeking Bible answers. The studying involved. Just recently, another one. This past week or two, I went back and forth with one of you. You had a Bible question for me. I thought I had answered it, and again, it was me, just again, just thinking, oh yeah, it's this, and no, you wanted clarification. You wanted to drill deeper, so you went back, and we went back and forth. This is New Westmount. No, I need to understand the word. I need clarity. My, oh my, don't stop. That is fantastic. What is going on here? Westmount, your hearts are hungry, and your hearts are ready. So the time has come for this rich study, and I have absolutely no doubt, listen, with that, that this study will land with an impact. Not because of anything that we're teaching here, nothing clever, not because of any human being, no, not at all. That's not why I know it will land with an impact. We know it will land with an impact. First and foremost, it's the Word of God. Secondly, every time Romans is opened and hearts are ready in the history of the church, it is landed with an impact. The 4th century, it was a 32-year-old Augustine who in his own words said, a tumult of my heart took me out into the garden. He was just wrought with his sin. Those of you that know Augustine, it was dripping from his pores. In bondage to his sin and his tumult of heart took him out to the garden. He was ready. And there he was struck by the words when he picked up the scroll in chapter 13 of Romans, verses 13, 14. He read this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. That's what he was wrought with. And then the answer. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's a solution. Upon reading that, Augustine threw himself down under a fig tree and he wept and he wept. And he wept. He had the solution. In the 16th century, it was a young monk, you know him, named Martin Luther, similarly heart-wrenched, feeling the tangible bondage of his sin and the helplessness of his state. Which, by the way, Christian, as Jeremy alluded to, if you are a Christian, you know exactly what that feels like. To be so bent up and bound by a sin that is inescapable by anything you can do. Martin Luther felt that. And thus he came across the first chapter of Romans in the presentation of the righteousness of God. Where you can even 
Look at it as he did. Verse 17 says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Later, Luther would call this passage, I quote, a gateway to heaven for him. Indeed it is. Through the centuries that followed, Romans would impact the theologically lost at the time, such as John Wesley, to the theologically liberal, such as Karl Barth. Hearts warmed, as Wesley famously said, hearts ready, Romans striking deep, 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 deep. And take heed, Westmount, studying Romans will leave an effect on your soul. I can only warn you. If you embark on this study with us, you will be affected. And you will be changed. I'll tell you this, I pray I first and foremost, and I look forward to it, and each of you too will be changed. And so, with that introduction and warning, let us begin to deal now with the context of this book. The context. We've talked about the why Romans. Now let's look at the what of Romans. The book of Romans is really, as you look down at it, depending on what translation you have there, different ways, the letter of Paul to the Romans, if you're in the ESV, it's a letter In fact, if we were to go down to verse 7, let's look at that for a moment, preview there. Verse 7, it says this, to all those, it's a letter, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. To be saints. Rome, of course, was and still is a major city in the region of the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, it still is that. It is an ancient big city, and it is certainly today that. Again, it would have been back then, and here's the hallmark, it would have been very busy, a very cosmopolitan city, lots of traffic going through it. And that's key. As Gentile cities go in the ancient Near East, there really would be none bigger than Rome. I mean, Rome was as big as it got. And at the time this letter was written, and I'll give you that, roughly 55, 56 AD, at the time that it was written, mid-first century, the gospel had landed there. gospel had landed there. Likely carried there by some of the visitors from Rome. And I say it that way because that's exactly how Acts 2 records it. Acts 2 verse 10. Visitors from Rome. You remember the day of Pentecost? You have all the different uh, Cappadocians, nationalities, etc. And then it has, says visitors from Rome as a tag on at the end. So very likely those visitors at Pentecost would have gone back to Rome with the gospel. With the gospel. They took home the good news. Thus, as the good news does when planted, it takes root, it spreads, and it grows. Christian, you know that. Hence, a couple of decades after Pentecost, the saints in Rome would be many. By the way, Rome in the middle of the first century, according to historians and our best uh, grab at what the situation would have been as we look at it, it had roughly a population of one million people. We're descending into a church at the time. There would have been about 1 million people in the city proper. And it's estimated that about fifteen to 50,000 of those 1 million were Jews. And the rest were Gentile. That's really important. Now you may say, they say that seems odd and an odd thing to point out in the study. But it's helpful when we think of the audience of this book. This is going to become paramount as we get into this book. Who is Paul writing to and what's going on with that group? What needs to be addressed in this letter with a Gentile majority and a remnant of Jews? The composition of Rome tells us the letter was written mostly to a Gentile church. 
Now, we'll comment more on that along the way. For now, though, again, we know by way of audience, this letter was to, look at it again, verse 7, all the saints in Rome to the church. Thus, we would say, for the saints in Rome then, and Westmount for the saints here today, for you and for me. I'm reminded of what Jeremy led us in this morning from another letter, if you recall, 1 Timothy 3, do you remember? Another letter in the New Testament said, I'm writing these things, the author said, to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. It's the New Testament letters. That's the marching orders for New Testament letters, right? For the household of God, not limited in scope. For the household of God, then and now. So that leaves us with one last obvious introductory question as we conclude the beginning of this letter. Who wrote this letter to the church in Rome? And that's our cue as we dig into the text, the very first word, in fact. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In ancient times, letters began with the one writing them. They always did. The one penning the letter would have been the first name in the letter. That was ancient custom. It's the reverse of today, where we sign off sincerely, right, or whatever it would be by whoever's writing it. But that wasn't the case in ancient times. Here, out of the gate, the writers first hear Paul. Paul is the author. Now, saying that, and before we look at Paul, let's not forget what was behind Paul's pen. We need to pause for a moment, and this is where we need our theology firmly in check as we talk about that. What was behind Paul's pen? Who was behind Paul's pen? The original source and author of this book and all 66 books, and who is that? Well, 2 Peter one twenty one teaches us this. It says this, listen, no scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of the words that you see in front of you. God in his superintendence and his sovereignty used men to bring those words. He didn't just airdrop packages down, right? Which I think often people want to believe happened. No. The inspired words providentially through men at a time, like Paul. God used men to communicate his word. But see that they are his words. That's why we say they are the inspired words. There's nothing special about Paul in one sense. He is not inspired. It's the words that are inspired. This we will cover in our foundations class next week. This is very timely when we look at inspirations. Perfect. So the Holy Spirit, by way of the pen of Paul, gave us these inspired words. Now, Westmount, we're very familiar with Paul. If you've been at Westmount for any amount of time... We've looked at his testimony often, have we not? The Apostle Paul. Think about our study in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, you had his testimony. Think about Galatians 1 and 2, when we studied Galatians, right? Paul, of course, was known as Saul. Now, that's not to be confused with the first Old Testament king from 1 Samuel 8. No, this, that was his name, Saul, before his conversion. Previously, that Saul, then Paul, was a zealous Pharisee, do you remember, of the highest order. He talks about this in his testimony. He says, you want to talk about being zealous for the law of God and the righteousness of God? I was. Once ravaging the church, hunting down and imprisoning disciples. That's how rabid he was, right? Thinking that what he was doing was righteous before God, as Christianity landed in the first century. 
And so he was zealous, hunting down those that talked about grace. Seemed to be talking about something different to the law. While breathing, Acts 8 9 tell us threats and murder. That was Saul. Then God called him, struck him down while on mission to Damascus. What a scene. He had his legal papers in hand to knock down doors, to take out those Christians and incarcerate them. He was ready and specifically to persecute disciples of the Lord. But God called him, converted him, and commissioned him as recorded in Acts 9. Now we'll have much more to say about Paul's mission and commission next week as we get into it there. Especially, we will round out the picture of his relationship, the Apostle Paul, to this Roman church. We'll get into that. For now, though, before we run completely out of time, let's complete our look at Paul in verse 1. The rest of the verse, look at it, gives us what we would say are three appositions. You say, what's an apposition? It simply means an explanation. It has a position beside, and it explains further, right? You could say Jason, the father, the husband, etc., etc. It's an apposition. It's a further description. And each warrants comment. First, let's look at the three of them. First one, Paul is defined as a servant of Christ Jesus. First apposition of that. That's the same greeting, by the way, and he pulls Timothy in in Philippians. It's the same greeting to say servant of Christ Jesus. Now, what is that? Look at that word. That word for servant, a lot of you know this, is doulos. And as such, the proper translation is slave. Is slave. If any of you have an LSV in here, You'll have that. Slave is the proper translation. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. This would have resonated with Roman saints. Listen, roughly 60%, 60% of that population in Rome was slave origin. More than half of the city knew about the slave economy. They knew the import of that word slave. They knew what that meant. Because many of them, most of them, had been owned. And owned meant what? Owned. You were owned. This was complete ownership by a master. Complete submission then to the master. The Roman citizen knew what it meant to be a slave. And here, Paul says, I am a slave to Christ Jesus. This was a declaration of ownership. Paul made clear he had no rights because Jesus Christ was his master and Lord. This is a common greeting by Paul in many letters, setting authority straight. Yet for Paul too, and we're going to comment on this as we go along in Romans, every Christian, not just he, was a doulos Christu, a slave of Christ. This is not just in Romans 12 or 14, 16 or 1, but in all of Paul's letters. It opens the Corinthian letters. It opens the Colossian letters. The term expresses the total belongingness, listen, total allegiance, absolute ownership and sovereignty in authority of Christ over his own. That's what it means to be a slave of Christ. You are absolutely owned by Jesus. Often denoted by the word in the New Testament, kurios, which means Lord, one of the reasons why we love Lord and see the genius of the word is it expresses lordship. You are not your own. You're not your own. You are Christ. That means you have no agenda. You're owned by him. 
Paul is a slave of Christ. Christian, you're a slave of Christ. Romans will expand. Two, look at the second apposition. Paul says he is called to be an apostle. Again, as Paul does in most of his letters, he makes clear that his position, note this, beloved, his position was not by his choice. Do you see that? He makes very clear, if we could paraphrase, I didn't ask for this. Right? It was not my choice. Doesn't mean he doesn't receive it with joy. It just means it wasn't his choice. His testimonies testify to the fact that he was moving in one direction and God pulled him in the other. He was called to be an apostle, a sent one. That's what that word means, a sent one, specifically to a task. Paul, of course, had a very unique task in the first century. And again, we're going to talk about that more in Romans, which is very different to sent ones today. But we note now that this is all over the New Testament, the idea of being sent by God. In the Corinthian letters, Paul says he was called by the will of God to be an apostle. So to be called by God means it's not a matter of your will. It's God's will who calls. All him. In the letter to the Galatians, he says, Paul says he's an apostle not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ. In other words, there's no body in commission to say, okay, Paul, there you go. You go Look, in a sense, there's a laying on of hands of him and Barnabas, but ultimately, spiritually, what he's going to do, that only comes from the Lord alone. And he makes that clear in that letter. God alone. Paul's testimony, again, resonates, it vibrates each time he records it, that what he is doing, who he is, and what he's called to do, is all God. One thing that strikes you when you read Paul's testimony is this, if it was left up to me, I'd still be breathing threats and murder, but God. Christian, do you resonate with that? If you're a Christian, you must, because that's how it works. We can't muster this up on our own. If it was left up to me, I would be figuratively breathing threats and murder. But God, that's the only way it works in salvation. I don't get clever and think, you know what, I really should get a bone on Christianity. I'm in the back half of my life. I really need to clean myself. No, that's not the way it works. But God, only God. His calling is choosing. We cannot highlight this enough, Westmount. Apostleship was not Paul's choice. The term calling like slaves is applied in the New Testament to all of God's people, by the way, and we've touched on this, and this is important when we think of calling. So perverse today. Calling in the New Testament is important because the term used, look at it there, kaleo, right? this is this calling you see in the New Testament. It's God's gracious call to life and salvation, yes, Salvation, life and salvation, yes, praise God. But more, you are called equally to faith, obedience, and service. You're called not just to salvation and eternal life. You're called, Philippians 2, to work out the salvation with fear and trembling that you've been given. That's calling. Beloved, I say that because that is just a misunderstanding today. People don't see that. God does not call us to categories. I'm a Christian. He doesn't call us to labels or adjectives or to groups. He calls us to action. This too will be made clear as we study this book. Appreciate Jeremy taking us to Romans 6. Passage, it outlines this. You are a slave. You're still a slave, but you have a different master. And that means fulfilling the mandate of the master. You did that with sin. Don't do that anymore. Fulfill the mandate of your new master, Christ. 
Christ. Again, Romans 6, we'll get there. Thirdly, verse 1 says, third opposition, Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. That word, look at it, behind set apart, is important to note here for a couple reasons, a couple things we need to point out with that word. Number one, that word there, it's the same word used, the Septuagint, which is really the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, right, is picking up this concept, right, or has picked it up first, and it's recognized in the new. This idea of being set apart. And we looked at this in our study in Exodus. All kinds of offices and ministries that are called to be set apart. Right? We studied this extensively in Exodus. Exodus 13, remember the firstborn were called to be set apart, to be consecrated. There's something about them. The priests, consecrated, set apart. The sacrifice, consecrated, set apart. Even the prophets. This is what Paul is picking up here. He's tying this language to the stream of Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 1, verse 5, the call of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, from the Lord, says this. This is what the Lord says to him. Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated, same word there, I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So when was Jeremiah called? Was he called when he grew up and God said, you know, there's a really good Jew. He's got it together. He's a good order. When was Jeremiah called? Before he was even in his mother's womb. Paul picks up on that and says, in other words, before the foundation of the world I was called. What's amazing if you're going to get into the, the nature of this verb there, set apart. It's in a tense that basically says it has to be in the past. It was set in the past. And even more, this is how dynamic it gets. It says that this just is a complete thing. Paul was called long ago and he still is called now. Incredible stuff here. Paul gets this and says, I was set apart before I even knew what set apart was. Amazing. True for Paul, but beloved, it's not just a Pauline thing. We're going to see this later in Romans. Set apart is true of you and me as well. If you're in Christ. It's not just Levitical priests, Old Testament prophets, or New Testament Paul that are set apart. Christian, you too, set apart from the world before the foundation of the world onto God, Ephesians 1, for his exclusive service. Paul was set apart for service, but note here as we wrap this opening verse, what was he set apart for? Look at it. Just because? Just as a little trophy to sit in a shadow box, right? Just this is a, No, what was he set apart for? The gospel of God. Do you see it? The gospel of God. What is this gospel? Well, beginning next week, we of course get that in such broad strokes in verses 2 to 7 and the rest of this letter. We will see indeed the gospel of God unfold. I can assure you we will learn much of its many facets. It will be a journey, Westmount. A blessed journey, I pray. It will be good. However, as mentioned, we need to close for today. And we give one final opening consideration of this gospel of God before we do. One final opening remark. In 1762, political philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, if you know him, opened his very influential book, The Social Contract, with these famous words. You know them. Man was born free, and everywhere he is what? In chains. That's a landmark social philosopher that said that. And that made an impact. Man, note it, man was born free, 
But it's everything else around him that subdues him and puts him in chains. That was, beloved, progressive thinking 250 years ago. That's from a true progressive. Yet, so it is still today, right? So it is still today. Man is born, the new righteousness says, abundant and free. But it's everything else around him that oppresses him. Man is born free if we could just free him from the systems, from the race, from the place, from the religion, if we could just free him. Man is born free and everything around him today puts him in chains. Beloved, nothing could be more opposite to the truth than that. No, the gospel of God declares that man is born in chains. Can we say that again? Man is born in chains. Chains fell off, and I was free, one hymnist said. And only by the way of the righteousness of God, a disposition and a nature so alien to him, but imputed to him as a free gift given through faith in Christ Jesus, only then can he truly be free. Only then do the chains come off. Only then is he unbound. This gospel of God declares freedom in Christ, and note it, not freedom to oneself. Like it's unlocked, okay, go ahead, you're free, do whatever you want. No, but freedom to do as one ought, as one created in the image of God ought to do. Freedom to finally live as you were made to live. That is no Again, moving expression, that's truth. To live as we ought to live. To live in and by way of the righteousness of God. That's what we were made to do. The gospel of God then has implications, beloved. It's not just that my life is secure after I die. I made that choice, thankful for that. No, it's much more than that if it's true. It is this, my life is defined by a standard of righteousness here and now as I live into eternity. Friends, the righteousness of God, we want the label, but we don't want the life. But there's no saving righteousness without sanctifying righteousness. There is none. A righteousness that defines truth does not waver or cave and is counterculture. That is the gospel of God. And listen to me, it is not popular at all today. We will face criticism. We already have. We will be mocked. We are. And we will be attacked. Some of us, again, face that in spades already. Church, our stand for this gospel means that persecution awaits West Mount Takehart, the gospel of God proclaims not just power, but a place. This is it. The refuge you seek in a fallen world. The gospel proclaims you have that place. We feel we're on an island, don't you? Oh, I know you do. I hear this all the time. I feel like I'm all alone. I feel that no one understands me. I go to the dinner table with my friends. No one gets it. I come to the one place where people understand to be with the body of Christ. What's going on? Nobody gets it. We do. The redeemed. This is your family. Take heart. This place. The gospel of God proclaims again, not just power, but place. Let us never forget that place in which we dwell. 
For sure, there's refuge in these walls at times, Sundays, Wednesdays, but we're not talking about that. This is more. I want you to stand with me and consider one final confession that we're going to sing. We have been confessing all morning long, have we not? And we have one final confession to make. One final confession to make. In a moment, I want you to listen carefully. This is what we will be helped and led in, and we're going to sing together. I want you to listen. Who dwells within his most secret place is never far from his blessed grace. Beneath his great shadow, all will be well. No better place for us to dwell. Fear not, Westmount, fear not the terror that comes at night, nor flaming arrows by morning light, and they will come. They're coming already, and they will continue to come. His truth is always our sword and shield, praise God. Against his power, all foes must yield. Before we sing, let's pray. Father, what peace and power we have to know that we dwell in your most secret place, the domain of the God most high, the shadow of our mighty king. Implant this study deep into our hearts and keep us firmly planted in your place. For there and only there, by your gospel and in the refuge of your son, Jesus Christ, is the only place in which we are safe. And so there in Christ, is where our praise will forever ring. Oh God, receive that praise now. Amen.